Welcome to Famous with Kate and Liz. We're back with Famous Disappearances. Buckle in, because we are going for a ride tonight. So good. Liz has all the uh, info this week. She went on her own solo deep dive, and I cannot wait to hear about your pick for famous disappearances. Last week, just a reminder, we talked about um, Olivia Newton-John's ex-boyfriend because we found out they were not dating at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, oh, what's his name? Patrick McDermott, not Dylan McDermott. Just just wanted to say that. Confused with the still relevant actor, Dylan McDermott. (laughs) Yes. He is still alive and well as of the recording of this on Tuesday. Um, But anyway, so we kind of talked about that case and how is, was it a fake death situation? Was, did he jump off the boat? Did he get pushed overboard? We still don't know. So that one big question mark. Yeah. Accident, suicide, murder, like, I don't know. The whole mystery is just so fascinating. And we were saying before we started recording, that's definitely like more of a, a man thing to do. I feel like men fake their death more than women. It seems like, or at least we hear about it more. Right. Yeah. Like I would, I would say it's a more plausible kind of thing to believe. Um, if a man disappears, you might automatically think like, okay, he just like ran away from his family. (laughs) Or something, you know, like you hear about all these old time stories where like traveling businessmen literally just had several families. <laughs> like, oh, so like I could imagine many people from that time period kind of doing that for how often you kind of hear about it. And with all the DNA testing now, like all these easy, easily accessible kits, people are finding out like, oh, my God like new siblings that they have that they never knew about and it's wild. So anywho, we have another kind of um, mystery disappearance um, for this episode. So just take it away because I'm going to stop talking. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, this one is different. I mean, uh, so I would say this is a pretty famous, haha. I mean, I guess it should be, that's the name of our show, a uh, famous case, like anybody who, I don't know, just like knows about like true crime, I guess, probably knows about uh, D.B. Cooper, who is uh, who we are talking about today. And D.B. Cooper is a pseudonym for an unidentified man who hijacked um, an airplane uh, on November 24th, 1971. And he disappeared and has never been found to this day (laughs) yeah this is this is wild and and there is a drunk history episode of dc cooper and that's that's a great one so it's for sure i think there might be a criminal and i probably my favorite murder's done it you know i know yeah podcast and of course we're gonna do high level right because there were like so many random suspects um for this case like I couldn't go into all of them so (laughs) no no you couldn't yeah like you were saying a whole entire C 
series about just this one guy. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, but this is, yeah, kind of one of those vanished into thin air kind of cases, which um, are always just inexplicable and fascinating. So let's get into it. Um, all right. So on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971. Oh, and quick note, got all my info from Wikipedia. So thank you. All right. <laughs> yes, please donate. Just give them five bucks. Five bucks for us, please. So it's 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, and a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case um, approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport, and he identified himself as Dan Cooper. He used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, which was a 30-minute trip just north to Seattle-Tacoma. He boarded the plane and took, I just thought this was interesting, he took seat either 18C or 18E or 15D. Like, I don't know why it matters, but. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's so funny. And it's crazy because, like, when you think about, I mean, even, like, when we were young, how different air travel was. Oh, my gosh. Just going. You know, to- I'm, I always I- am fascinated when I remember, like, oh, my God, if they show, like, old footage or, like, so think about the 70s. I mean, the wild, wild west of the skies, if I might say. You know, it's really interesting because they did actually, I didn't, I took this part out of my research, but it's worth noting that, yes, it was the wild, wild west of the skies. There was a lot of hijacking going on at this time. And one reason D.B. Cooper was notable is because he was kind of like polite and well-mannered and he wasn't like a revolutionary that was like, take me to Cuba, you know, like that's like the, who they were like used to. And like, it was yeah. just, like, there was a lot of like that kind of air crime happening during this time. Yeah, you could just go up. I mean, there was not all this technology. You, you could literally make up a name, buy a ticket in cash and disappear like very easily. There, People aren't even like going through your bags to make sure you don't have, you know, explosives or whatever. None of that. You just walk up to your gate. Anybody could. I wonder how many people just snuck on planes, like how easy that must have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's also a really good criminal um, episode about people like um, stowaways, for sure. So I think it was just so much easier back then. Um, so Dan Cooper ordered a drink on his flight, a bourbon and soda, and eyewitnesses described him as being in his mid-40s and wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. Um, I believe he had a clip-on tie, which... Just so classic. <laughs> yeah. Didn't he have a mustache too or no? Like a uh, fake mustache? I don't know. Or is that like a made up thing that people just do? Cause like, I, there is like a composite sketch and I don't think he has one in it. Um, oh, okay. But I, I don't. Hey, I may have totally forgotten about that, and I might come along <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah, you're like his find big, out. bushy mustache. <laughs> we will find out. Let's see. It's not ringing a bell, but we're only one paragraph in. <laughs> oh, my God. Can't wait to find out. I'm on the edge of my sh- my seat, literally. <laughs> Whether or not he has a mustache. <laughs> oh, my God. In the in my mind's eye, he does not. But um, Okay. 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 So, um, and, and like you, you guys have probably seen it or you can definitely 
Google it. It's like he's wearing dark sunglasses, um, some sunglasses, and he has like a very clean cut kind of haircut, you know, just exactly like the time. Um, so, okay, so the flight was approximately one third full and it deported Portland on schedule at 2.50. Um, and shortly after takeoff, Dan Cooper handed a note to Florence Sha- uh, Schaffner. And she's the flight attendant um, who was nearest to him in the jump seat um, that's attached to the stair door. And she just thought it was like, oh, like a lonely businessman is trying to give me his phone number. And like, uh, yeah, put the note in her in her purse, like didn't even look at it. <laughs> oh, my God. And And think about being a stewardess at this time. Oh, my God. Right, right. You I'm- must have gotten harassed. So like, like, um, yeah, Yeah. like that was just the norm. Exactly. That was the norm. So she just like (sighs) popped in her purse, but then, um, Cooper leaned towards her and whispered, miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. So was like from him, it was printed in all capital letters. We don't know exactly what it said because, uh, Cooper got it back from her later on. But um, she did, like, come and sit next to him, which he requested. And then um, she was like, like, can I see the bomb? (laughs) And he opened his briefcase and showed her, like, eight red cylinders um, in two rows of four that looked like dynamite, I guess, um, within his briefcase. And there was, like, wires and a battery. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. Update. I just Googled like the picture of D.B. Cooper and it's the big black sunglasses that I'm thinking of, not a big mustache. Yes. Yeah. He later puts on these sunglasses. Um, Okay. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. Like they're just look so ridiculous. Like, like such a, a spy or like someone trying to like hide from everything, but yet making it so obvious, like in an almost ironic way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, don't be suspicious, but it, yeah, <laughs> totally. suspicious. <laughs> Everyone's looking at you like what? So, um, so yeah, so she sees these things that look like, um, bombs in his briefcase and he has, um, these demands. He wants $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary ones and two reserves and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the, the plane once it arrives. Um, and so Cooper's telling um, uh, Schaefner, the flight attendant, all this. And then she goes to the cockpit to tell the pilots. And when she returns, he's now wearing these ridiculous dark sunglasses <laughs> that you're talking about. <laughs> so, dude, she must have been so scared. Ugh, oh my god I'd be I can so imagine. scared and yeah and so like she she probably saw um the most of him and got like the best description of him um the captain was a guy named William A. Scott and he contacted Seattle Tacoma Airport F- um traffic control and they worked with federal authorities to help meet his demands pretty much um the 35 passengers that were on the flight were told that their flight to Seattle was going to be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. So, like, no one knew, you know, that's good on the team for, like, keeping everyone calm. No one knew. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, my God. People would be in absolute hysterics. Right. Exactly. Um, 
the airline president, Donald Nyrup, um, authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered all employees on the plane to fully cooperate with the hijackers' demands. And the aircraft um, circled the area for two hours to allow the police and the FBI time to get the parachutes and the ransom money and, like, mobilize all, you know, emergency oh people. Oh, my God. <laughs> so these poor people are just, like, circling Seattle. Like, <laughs> just oh, my God. <sighs> okay. That is insane. There would be so many fights breaking out. Oh, my God. Yeah, going. yeah, today, definitely. Um, okay, so then another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, recalled that um, Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he, he remarked, it looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. And he also mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Um, and so that's like kind of something that only someone local or maybe someone who had been in the air force might know. So that's something that they've always thought about him. Like he, it wouldn't be just like typical civilian talk. I guess. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. He's knowledgeable about, about that. Yeah. Um, and so the flight attendants described him as, like I said, polite and well-spoken. He wasn't nervous. Um, he seemed rather nice and he was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm the whole time. Um, and he kind of like reassured the flight attendants. He asked for another like bourbon soda, paid his drink tab, attempted to give the flight attendants his change. Um, and then he also requested that once they get to Seattle, there be meals provided for the flight crew. So like, in addition to his demands, he also, oh my God, everybody was getting fed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was like had a heart kind of but also (laughs) not because you're probably needing this money for nefarious things and uh I don't know if we support this um and so Tina Mucklow had asked him you know while they're making all these preparations she asked Cooper um do you have a grudge with Northwest Orient Airlines and he replied I don't have a grudge against your airline miss I just have a grudge which I love that oh god yeah he's just like in general just in general that is the vibe yep and it's just your lucky day sorry oh my god this is crazy and I feel like okay he wants to parachute down wouldn't there just be like so much like police presence that they'd be able to track where like where he landed and then just like surround that area right or is it just not that easy the whole plan is really when they get to seattle he wants the plane to refuel up and head to mexico city so oh wait but so but obviously when the plane lands they're gonna like they would like storm the plane and never let you take off right I don't they don't (laughs) because you have a bomb I know I guess I'm just trying to think of like in a general situation of this like what I don't know yes I mean yeah yeah, yeah, there's like definitely all the emergency 
authority personnel like waiting, you know, around when when it lands for sure. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but these demands, it's like the demands of them or like, you know, if if they said, well, I want a car waiting for me. Well, they're obviously going to have a tracking device on the car, you know, like they're, right. they're going to make it look like they're going to make it look like they're meeting all of your demands. And then you think like, ha ha ha, I got away like that. You're fine. No, like why would why would someone with such a schemed plan like not think? that I don't know I don't know I'm thinking too much into it well I think it was also time too right um and so maybe yeah yeah, they're just not okay I gotta get I gotta really get my head in the (laughs) like just know that they don't get stormed okay (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't happen (laughs) I know I know they don't I I just can't get over how like okay sorry continue (laughs) Please, please, please. So, yeah, I mean, they do meet his demands. FBI agents assemble the ransom money from um, several different Seattle area banks. They get $10,000, sorry, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L. Um, And we're going to talk about the bills and the ransom money later on. So it is the serial numbers are important. Um, and they're issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and the authorities do like a microfilm photograph of each bill before they hand it over to him. So they are doing some stuff to try to track him, right? Like they're okay, taking- okay, yeah. At least they're doing that, okay, yeah. Which like I guess wasn't maybe much of a as known thing as it is now. I mean, now I feel like it's general knowledge that like the money's printed like in order, so you know if something happens and law enforcement is like, you know, collecting evidence, they're going to look at, you know, they know to look at the serial numbers of the money. Like, is it in chronological order? Then like it can be suspicious or whatever. I don't know. There's like, I feel like there's whole podcast episodes about like, that kind of stuff too yeah I mean like that's why you like have to launder money you know so because it is you know otherwise, yeah, right right all of that um so then the authorities also brought him the parachutes that he requested but they brought him um air force quality parachutes from McCord air force base and he rejected those and said he wanted four civilian parachutes that had the manually operated rip cords um, so the oh. Seattle police had to get them from a local uh, skydiving school, which is interesting because like they they say that like these, you know, Air Force ones are like much better quality and heavy duty and you would want that. Huh. Yeah, that is weird. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. so the aircraft lands in Seattle in heavy rain about an hour after sunset and Cooper tells the pilot to taxi the plane to an isolated brightly lit section of um the airport tarmac and close all of the shades in the cabin to deter police snipers um the operations manager for the airline approaches the aircraft in street clothing because he doesn't want to be um confused with a police officer if he's wearing his like airline uniform oh my god no (laughs) can you imagine having to do that he must have been shitting his pants i know i'd be like why do i have to go why can't the police do this like you put on street clothes he's not going to know who the operations manager is from the airline (laughs) 
Yeah. That is such a 70s thing to do. Yeah. Um, so then he delivers a cash-filled knapsack and the parachutes, um, parachutes to Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant, um, using the air stairs. Um, and once they're delivered, Cooper allows all the passengers and flight attendants Schaffner um, and flight attendant Alice Hannock to leave the plane. Um, and they start refueling because his whole plan is to go to Mexico. Um, and the process is a little delayed because the FAA is trying to like negotiate it and, um, set up a face-to-face meeting with Cooper. Um, but he denies that. And yeah, I mean, that would be dumb. Yeah, exactly. Like Like you're saying, they're way too polite. No one's just storming the the plane, which they probably totally could have done. You know, it's just him, but he does have the bomb. Right. Um, yeah. And the pilot or pilots or whoever else he's making stay on the plane and they would they would die from a bomb absolutely um and so cooper's getting impatient he's saying this shouldn't take so long and he sends a note to the crew saying let's get the show on the road (laughs) oh my god he's like the most suave like hijacker so 70s i'm just like i can just like picture him get the show on the road like in a leisure suit yeah um okay so he tells the cockpit crew his flight plan he wants a southeast course to mexico city at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft oh my god you know he's already thinking of like jumping right because he's got the parachute right wants it to go super slow um this is like it has to be at a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet um but would go like 100 knots I don't know you know but that's slow I guess (laughs) yeah (laughs) sure I guess so sure (laughs) sounds good uh he also further specifies that the landing gear uh, must remain deployed in the takeoff um, landing position the wing flaps must be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized um first officer william j radizak informs cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately a thousand miles under the specified flight configuration which meant that they were going to have to refuel again at some point oh, before they get to god <laughs> Yeah. Oh, will he just jump out already? He is stressing me out. Well, that's what I'm thinking too. Okay, guy, you hijacked this plane that was literally going just 30 minutes from Portland to Seattle. Then you also think you can just now take that plane, which is probably tiny, like to all the way to Mexico. Like, oh. I, it seems it just doesn't seem that well thought out. Um, in some instances in other ways it really does you know yeah that's the thing it's like you think if somebody can come up with like some of these really smart plans that the rest of the plans would be really smart but not necessarily yeah I guess so the crew and Cooper discussed the options and they agreed that they would land it at the Reno Tahoe um, airport as the second refueling stop Oh, my God. Yeah. So they're not even out of the United States yet. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. And, like, they're not. that's not even that far away from where they've started, it doesn't seem like, either. So. Right. Yeah. God. Okay. This is a journey. 
Yeah. Okay. So at approximately 7.40, the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, flight attendant Tina Mucklow, Captain Scott, and First Officer Radizak, um, and flight engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. Um, and there was two um, fighter aircrafts from McCord Air Force Base that were following the airliner. So the government was following them. Oh, right. Yeah. So how could they not? Okay. <laughs> You're going to tell us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they, you know, were flying above and below, um, you know, uh, the, the airline, Northwest Orient airline. Um, and that, but one of them, I believe had like, was also low on fuel and had to turn back. So just again, not prepared. <laughs> oh my God. This is a shit show. This is such a 1971 I can't even take it. It really is. It really is. So after takeoff, Cooper told Tina Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the curtain closed. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed um, in the cockpit, indicating that the aft um, air stair apparatus had been activated. And um, the pilots um, radioed over the intercom and asked Cooper if he needed any assistance. And he picked up the cabin phone and replied, no. And that was the last they heard from him. Wow. So they noticed that there was a significant change in air pressure. So they figured that that meant the door was open in the plane, um, but they're all in the cockpit. So they don't, they're not seeing what's happening. Um, oh at, my God. I can't handle how stressed out they must've been all in the air. This is all happening in the air and they're just like having yeah. calm and not crash. Um, oh. at approximately 8, 13 PM, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. So seems like something left the plane. Um, and then at some point between 10 and 11, 30 p.m., the plane landed with the air stairs still deployed at the Reno Tahoe airport. Oh, um, my God. They couldn't, I guess, I guess they might get sucked out if they went near it, right? I, I mean, can you imagine just seeing this with, like, the air, like, stairs hanging down from it? <laughs> oh, my God. I'd be like, I'm not getting on a plane now. Goodbye. Right. So it landed, FBI agents, state troopers, the sheriff's deputy, the Reno police, they were all there, you know, but they didn't approach the plane just in case the bomb was still live. Um, the pilot, Captain Scott, confirmed that Cooper was no longer on board and um, the FBI bomb squad reported that the cabin was clear after a 30-minute sweep. So he left the plane. At some and... Uh Weren't the Air Force people, like, on him once he... Well, that's the weird thing, right? Because, they're like, did they see something? There's, like, nothing in here about them seeing someone jump out of the plane. Right, nothing. well, I guess if one of them left, maybe the other one is just, like, above it or something. Right. exactly. So they, yeah, you're right, they wouldn't be able to see. Oh, my God, why wouldn't they fly a little bit behind it? I, I, I just feel like... I don't know. Yeah, you would still be able to maybe see. It's so strange. Like I said, it's vanished into thin air. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. The FBI investigated this. They recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints um, from the airline, um, the airliner. The agents also found 
Cooper's black clip-on tie, his um, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two of the shroud lines cut from the canopy. Um, so no one knows why he did that. Oh. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and a series of composite sketches were developed, you know, based on those eyewitnesses for the one that is pretty famous that you're talking about with the um, sunglasses. Right. Yeah. Um, local police and FBI agents immediately started questioning possible suspects, and the very first one of the very first people they questioned was a man um, in Oregon with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Um, and the police were just like, well, maybe like the hijacker used his real name or, you know, let's just start with yeah. this guy, D.B. Cooper. And yeah, I feel like buddy. I could have like, I could have done that type of investigation. <laughs> um, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. Um, but a local reporter named James Long was rushing to meet an eminent deadline and he confused the suspect's name. So instead of Dan Cooper, he wrote D.B. Cooper, and that's how the pseudonym got used for, for this guy. Oh, no way. Mistake. Yeah, because after he reported it, then a wire service reporter for the UPI republished it, and it, like, went everywhere, and D.B. Cooper became, like, what people know as. Right. Well, I mean, that you're not getting, like, information on Instagram where they can edit it within a split second you know, a headline that they're posting. So, right. yeah, once it's in print, that's it. Yeah, so he's then the news is everywhere. But now we know him as D.B. Cooper because of a mistake, so. Wow, okay. Um, so the FBI, the FBI also recreated, um, like, the scene, kind of. They used a similar aircraft um, and the same flight configuration, and they pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair um, to try to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section um, that was described by the flight crew. Um, and initially, it was suspected that Cooper's landing zone was in the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington. Oh, weird. Yeah, it was near a lake, near Lake Merwin. So maybe landing in a lake might be better than a bunch of trees. Um, FBI agents and sheriff's um, deputies from Clark and Cowlitz counties search large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. They did door-to-door searches of local farmhouses. Uh, They took, like, boats out in Lake Merwin and Yale Lake. Um... And still had no trace of Cooper. Uh, but I mean, I feel like. Or any of the. He could have landed so. He could have landed, you know, depending on the speed of the wind that night. And like he had a parachute. So he could have kind of been in control to like not make it go to the most obvious. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. This I mean, is just I think such a mystery. I think it's weird that none of his equipment has ever been found either because like once that parachute is open and you land, like you're not really like packing it back up again and like taking it with you probably. <laughs> I don't know. Right. You know? Yeah. He'd probably just unclip it and get, get on with it. Yeah. It just seems it's so strange that there's no like 
any anything, you know, equipment. Yeah, but maybe um, he like folded it back up and took it with him, so they yeah. wouldn't know exactly where he landed. It just it, I just feel like there has to be like some kind of some clue. Yeah, something. You know? Yeah. Um, the FBI disclosed, um, interestingly enough, that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior Mm. professional sport parachute. Um, And from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy one that was unusable with um, its act like its chute was actually sewn shut, um, which was for classroom demonstrations. So like that was his alternative. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he also used, um, a cord from one of the functional parachutes to secure the money, um, bag that he used when he jumped out. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of strange. Like he requested these specific parachutes and seemed to kind of really know about them, but then he doesn't even bring a functional one as his backup parachute. So. Yeah. Yeah. That is crazy oh god all right I don't know if I want to parachute anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I don't blame okay so let's see shortly after the spring began to thaw because you know it is uh, snowy up there that's another thing like just you know the elements as well I think would be um jumping out in this area Uh, So teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 United States Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search um, across Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days um, in March. And then they did another 18 days in April. Again, just looking for any sign of him. Anything. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the um, depths of Lake Merwin. And during this whole investigation, two women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. But it was later identified as the remains of a woman named Barbara Ann Derry, um, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered. So, Oh, R.I.P. I know. Awful, right? Okay, so I talked about the ransom money earlier, um, and there has been kind of a search for the ransom money ever since. Um, A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the serial numbers to different financial institutions like casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conduct large cash transactions. So kind of like what you were saying, um, this is where like you would go to launder money or spend money or, you know, just get it out of, you know. Yeah, it's it's suspicious. So, yeah, yeah just Make get rid it of it. Cleaner, you know, not as easy to find, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, but they're searching for those serial numbers. Um, and Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money, a maximum of $25,000 to anyone who found the ransom money. Um, wow. In 1972, the U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public, and two men used 
counterfeit $20 bills printed with the serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man that they falsely claimed was D.B. Cooper. Oh, my God. When does, like, Newsweek pay for interviews either? Like, what? I thought (laughs) that's not ethically correct. Right. And you know that money is under some old man's mattress in, like, Louisiana. I I don't know. It's like, I feel like this money is, has not seen the light of day. Right. I mean, yeah. It's hoarded away. It could be traced. Um, So in early 1973, the ransom money was still missing. The Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI office. In Seattle, the Post-Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. um, And the offers remained good until Thanksgiving of the following year. Um, But there were... No matches, like several close ones, but no genuine bills were ever found. Um, Oh, my God. Do we still have money from the 70s circulating? Probably not, right? I mean, probably so. I don't know. I mean, I know cash, like, is not that common anymore, but, like, why not? I don't know. Right. Oh, right. It's under old people's mattresses. Yeah. Exactly. And then, like, when their kids have to go clean out the house then they'll find it and it'll be a big news story in the most cooper's money has been found under some old dude's mattress who promised a stranger that he'd keep his money for (laughs) the next 50 years i don't know where he put it yeah (laughs) something Uh, crazy in 1975 the airline's insurer finally like paid up um, and gave the airline $180,000 on their claim of the ransom money. So like, you know, the, the insurer of course was like really holding out, hoping that they didn't have to pay this money. Yeah. But interestingly enough, some of the ransom money has been found. (gasps) (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Some of it. Okay. So, on February 10th, 1980, so now, like, nine years later, eight-year-old oh. Brian Ingram was vacationing no. with his family on no. the Columbia River um, in a beachfront town known as, I think it's pronounced Tenabar. Um, it's about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel, Washington. And he uncovered three packs of the ransom cash totaling around... Wait hundred dollars in like the sandy riverbank because he was like what just messing around getting stuff for a campfire and found fifty eight hundred dollars of the db cooper ransom money i am literally quaking right now isn't this it's so crazy i had to include this um okay so the bills had really you know disintegrated from being exposed to the elements but were still bundled in rubber bands um, and FBI technicians confirmed the money was indeed a portion of the ransom, two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when they were given to Cooper. I am literally 
dad. <laughs> right? This little boy, can you imagine? That would be like the best day ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm going to be a pirate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. it. Buried treasure. It's my job. Um, the discovery launched several new rounds of conjecture, um, conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than answers. Um, initial statements wow. by investigators and scientific consultants were, um, you know, assumed that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many, like, connecting tributaries. Um, the 10 bills missing from one packet is still, like, unexplained. There's, like, no logical reason for, like, why there'd be 10 bills missing. Mm. I don't know if he, like, just put them in his pocket or something from this, like, one packet. Um, The physical evidence was also kind of incompatible with the geologic evidence. Um, So, like, there's kind of, like, this debate whether, like, these bills washed in, were they buried, you know, like, I don't know. It gets way too much into the geology of it at all. <laughs> um, right, 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 right. Um, the other thing is, like, I think after just, like, a, a couple of years, or not as long, it's been nine years, right? But experts say the rubber bands would have disintegrated over time and the bills wouldn't have still been together, you know? So it's all kind of strange, like, depending on if they had been buried or swept in, the rubber bands would have disintegrated so uh, yeah so it had to have been put there more recently but it is the serial numbers like it is confirmed right it is that money damn yep um so yeah in um 1986 after some negotiations the recovered bills were divided equally between brian ingram the little boy who found them and Northwest Orient's insurer, <laughs> the oh. FBI also kept 14 um, examples of the, uh, as evidence. And um, Brian Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. Uh, so he made some money off of those. Old- yeah, that's smart. Mm-hmm. Yep. And could have got way more for it today. The Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed physical evidence ever to be found from the hijacking. That is wild. Wow. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in 2007, the FBI announced that they had also put together a partial DNA profile because now we have the technology to do that from um, samples found on Cooper's clip-on tie. Um, but they later acknowledged that there's no evidence that the hijacker was, like, the source of the sample material. It was just, like, they had two small DNA samples and one large DNA sample. And I, I don't think they could narrow it down, but they just tested it to see. Um, and then in 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending the active investigation of the D.B. Cooper case citing that it needed to focus its investigative resources and manpowers on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they have a point because he didn't really hurt anybody. Yeah, exactly. Except for maybe himself. Who knows if he survived the jump. Right. 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 Um, That's true. That's true. I just guess I just assumed that he like made it off with the money. That's like, yeah, that's how I play out in my head. But I mean, easily he, you know, he could have been carrying the money. The money falls from him, like parachuting still in the sky. And then he like crashes and dies like 
Uh, yeah, I have a no mile idea. away from the money. Like we, but they they never found a body. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I figure if he died, they would have found something. Like, I know, but would they have? I mean, if it's all mostly wilderness, like yeah. there's so many like crevices and you know, like the wilderness is just like God. It's insane. Unforgiving. It's unforgiving. <laughs> it is insane. Um, local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related to the parachute or the ransom money or the case. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's fine. Yeah. If someone finds it and wants to turn it in. And the 66-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation is being preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, And it remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation. Okay. That was going to be my next question. Is is this case so famous because... It is the only, you know, kind of successful, um, yeah, air piracy. Wow. Yeah, I think it is. I think, uh, yeah, Crazy. that and just, yes, the com- the complete mystery that surrounds it. Um, so, yeah, we don't know where he is, what happened. But I want to leave you guys with um, the suspect profiling in case you think he may have seen D.B. Cooper and yes. can help mystery because the suspect profiling description has never changed this entire time in the entire, you know, 45, 50 years. Um, he is described as five foot, 10 inches tall, 180 pounds, mid forties with close set piercing brown eyes and swathy skin. <laughs> Ooh fancy um he appeared to be familiar with the seattle area and may have been an air force veteran based on the testimony that he recognized the city of tacoma from the air as the jet circled the puget sound and um his accurate comment to uh the flight attendant that mccord air force base was approximately 20 minutes away um his financial situation was probably very desperate um, according to the FBI's retired chief investigator, Ralph um, Himmelbach, Himmelsbach, <laughs> extortionists like D.B. Cooper, who steal large amounts of money, almost always do it because they need it urgently. Um, you know, otherwise they would just do, you know, little bits at a time if they could be patient. Right, right. It seems like a desperate mm-hmm. act. He could have also been someone who's just like a thrill seeker who just, you know, did it to prove that the jump could be done. Um, And then FBI agents also theorized that D.B. Cooper may have taken his alias from a popular French language Belgian comic series featuring a fictional hero named Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. Oh, my God. Of course. He's right. just like a super fan of that exactly. character. Exactly. Duh. Oh, my God. That's it. So if you that is it. of anyone who is like a thrill seeker, maybe in some dire financial straits that you just haven't in about 45 years. Oh my God. But I mean, everything about him does just sound like average, like everything you're saying, okay, the average man at that time, you know, like, so he wouldn't, you know, he's not like 
super, super, super tall guy who you'd see pick out of a crowd in a second. Like he obviously just blended in to yeah, society. Well, you know, businessman looking guy, like they said, he wasn't like the typical hippie hijacker that most people were. Yeah, used to. he just literally looked like a like a businessman in the early 70s, which were probably most of the men flying on planes. But I so want to know who he had a grudge against or just like, why? I know. I, I want to know why. Why did he do this? <laughs> Yeah, seems like maybe something against the Air Force or something. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, so he's got the money. And so it doesn't seem like it's a personal thing. Like, I don't think it's really just the thrill seeker to prove that it could be done. Because Yeah, I don't either. I don't think that's right. I feel like that was mostly kind of the take that Drunk History had on it. Mm. It, uh, That that I remember. Like, I don't remember it, like, super well, but... Right, like something to do with maybe like a boss or something like that at the airline, or I kind of do remember that too, or like someone there. Um, but yeah, yeah, you can watch that one if you want more. That is the tale of D.B. Cooper. We never know. So don't, you know, lose any sleep over it because we'll never know. <laughs> I can't handle the mysteries. I can't. I don't like listening to like the unsolved I just don't like it. I I'm know. I'm not a mystery girly. I like closure. The yeah, the cold cases are tough because you don't get that. Um, I don't know. This one just always fascinates me because just the lack of evidence and just really the fact that it seems like he got away with it. So, you know, I kind of like to think that maybe he is off living somewhere, you know, the life with his ransom money and has, you know, started over. But I know it's it's kind of like one of the root for the bad guys too stories, which are always fun. Right. I mean, I do feel bad for the crew people and the passengers on the first part of the flight because I'm sure they are still, if they're still alive, still suffering like traumatic. The crew, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So I like, mean, ugh, that sucks. At least he was like, you know, well-mannered. He, he didn't injure anyone, but de- definitely terrifying, right? To see a bomb. Oh my God, you're in the air. You have, <sighs> you have all these people's lives in your hand. Um, you know, thank your flight attendants, people. They do not get paid enough. And yes, Jason, Jason, yeah. if you're listening, <laughs> the flight attendant. So yeah, be nice to them. Okay. They like deal with way too much crap. Oh my God. I know. They're angels, actual angels flying above us. (laughs) Oh, well, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Well, that's all I got for this week, but we will be back with one more, um, one more episode on disappearances, which you'll do next week. But that means that we're also looking for new suggestions. So um, thank you, Amber V. I know you sent us some. You can send them to our Instagram at Famous Kate and Liz, Kate with a C. Probably the best way to get us some suggestions for future series that you guys want to hear about. Or special one-off episodes, too. We like to do those as well. Yes, do. We love it. We just love it. Um... Thanks for listening. As always, bunch of gems. <laughs> Catch you later. Bye.